0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. The first Christian artifacts that we have are texts. They are narratives, they are letters, they are things written in the Greek language and other surrounding languages there from the Mediterranean basin. But it doesn't take too long before we start getting visual art pictures of the apostles, pictures of episodes from the life of Jesus. But it's only much, much later that we start getting visual representation of that key, central moment in the Christian narrative, the resurrection. In his recent book, Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision, Dr. John Dominic Crossan explores the divergences between the Eastern and the Western artistic traditions using his career as a biblical scholar to comment on those things, and bringing them all together in really a fascinating argument. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have him on the show. Dominic, thank you for coming aboard.
1: It's a pleasure, Nathan.
0: So, for the sake of establishing some terms, because we're going to be using some uh, technical terms here, uh, tell our listeners the basic differences between direct and indirect depiction, as we're going to use those terms in our talk today.
1: Okay. Okay every other incident in the life of Jesus, the nativity, for example, the the transfiguration, the entry into Jerusalem, you'd pretty much recognize them if you saw them in a church. They're direct depictions of biblical descriptions. In other words, you could imagine an artist, as it were, reading the crucifixion. Let's go back to the year, say, 400. And an artist, say, in Constantinople, is reading Matthew's Gospel, and let's say his job is to do for Constantine, a very precious manuscript of Matthew's Gospel, and Constantine wants a full-page illustration of the major events in the life of Jesus. Big money, big commission. So your artist is doing fine. He reads the Nativity story, and he gets that, a uh, flight into Egypt. He, he does everything. Then he gets to the key moment of the whole thing, the resurrection, and he finds only indirect pictures. Now, by indirect, I mean the crucifixion is shown directly. It's as if you're there looking at it. Jesus' arms are outstretched on the cross. Mary is there. It's the actual moment of the crucifixion. It's not hidden in any way behind, say, the pieta or something. Then when you get to the resurrection, you get lots of stories about the empty tomb, the women and the men coming to the empty tomb. But that's the result, the consequence and effect of the resurrection. It is, of course, Then you have apparitions, visions of Jesus to women again and men, more powerful, indirect results. And you say, wait a minute, I'm supposed to do a direct image of the resurrection itself? Like if you were there, what would you see? (laughs) Would it be a big bang or what, what would you see? And I only have indirect visions, lots of them. In fact, I have so many indirect visions, it looks like they're covering up the fact that the most incredible, important event in all of Christianity is never described anywhere in the New Testament. And that really is the opening question of the book. How come? What's different about this event? If you said, a theologian said, well, it's so mysterious, nobody can depict it, you'd reply, well, is it any more mysterious than the ascension? And right. early Christians had no trouble depicting that, that the people are there and Jesus is ascending into the clouds.
0: And in how fact, come in the, the
1: resurrection.
0: Oh, go ahead, go ahead.
1: No, no, just how come the resurrection is so different? Okay.
0: And in fact, I mean, I and really I hadn't paid a lot of attention to this before I read this book. Uh, the only characters in the narrative who are present for it are, you know, in Matthew's version, you know, Roman soldiers. Uh, so even there. Uh, their testimony, if you will, is compromised by the way that Matthew tells that story as well.
1: That's a very, very good h- illustration, in fact, because you really have a story and a counter-story. You're told that they are to say they were sleeping and saw nothing, but the body must have been stolen while we were asleep. It's not going to hold up much of a court of law, obviously. You're you're saying you were asleep, but this must have happened. Now, when you go through the, the, the depictions, actually, we're jumping ahead a bit, mm-hmm. of this resurrection, when it's finally shown, the artists are never clear, am I supposed to be showing them awake and seeing everything, but lying about it later? Or are they supposed to be asleep and seeing nothing? So if you have only two soldiers, one is liable to be asleep and seeing nothing, and the other is awake and seeing everything. So Matthew makes it so difficult How do I depict what the soldiers actually saw and then lied about by saying they were asleep? Because Mm -hmm. Matthew never tells me.
0: Very good. I want to talk about one more pair of terms before we get into some art. Uh, What's at stake in distinguishing between the Greek noun anastasis and the Latin noun resurrection as we talk about art history and the history of Christian theology?
1: Well, for me, what's different, let me start with the Greek term. If I break it down, it's anastasis, which means literally up, rising. Mm-hmm. And stasis is not just an innocent word like, you know, you're getting it. can mean upright, of course. It can really mean the same way as rising for you and I could mean rising from bed. But very often when we talk about a rising, like in Ireland, when we talk about the Easter rising, we are not talking about Jesus at all. We're talking about a rebellion against the British Empire. Mm-hmm. So Anastasis has an acute overtone, at least, of uprising, rising up against something. Resurrection, well, if you think of insurrection, and if you think of resurrection as a re-insurrection, it's kind of the renewal of Jesus' uprising, as it were. mm mm-hmm. So there is a fair amount of political edge on it that's not quite there if you use the term like Easter. There's no political edge to that in itself. But if you really use Anastasis or even Resurrection, though it's more domesticated maybe, there's a political or a religio-political edge to it that we've quietly got rid of.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, listeners, you know that I always recommend that you buy these books, and this one especially. Uh, You need to see what's going on in these pictures, so I'll just recommend that uh, after you listen to this, of course, because I want you to listen to our show, uh, that you go ahead out and get Resurrecting Easter, because a lot of these images are going to tell the story in ways that just hearing about it won't. But nevertheless, we press on. So, Dominic, describe to our listeners the scene in the Dark Church's Anastasis piece, and how its elements and arrangement kind of set the stage for this book's large research program.
1: Well, what happened was 2002, and really we were not talking about research or anything else. We, in, 2000, in the year 2000, our friends Marcus Borg and Marianne Borg had invited us to be co-leaders for pilgrimages around Turkey in the footsteps of Paul. And we started that every year, and it was marvelous. We did it every year until 2014. But so we're in Cappadocio. This is 2002. And the churches are built, as you know, into the lunar landscape, the, the tuff of the volcanic rock. So you're literally going into a little miniature Byzantine cathedral carved inside the rock. So there's lots of room outside, but there's holes as you go in. So we're standing outside. I think it was May of 2002, and we're reading the inscription that tells, telling us what's inside, and it's written in Turkish, German, French, and English. We read through the English one because we're waiting for at least half an hour with our group to go in, in groups of maybe ten. English says there's all the scenes from the life of Jesus, and it starts off like the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, and the Word. But when it gets to the crucifixion, the next word it uses before it goes on to say ascension is Anastasis. It uses the Greek word in this English text. So, you know, my curiosity. I really don't want to make anything more than that. My curiosity. Why would they use a Greek term instead of resurrection? So, so we can look across the parallel texts in Turkish, English, and French, and we can kind of figure out enough to say that they're all talking about descent into limbo or descent into hell. They're not talking about going up. They're talking about going down. So it, it's my curiosity, Nathan. I, I really don't want to make more in it. So we get inside, and we see all the images around there, and you know we're, we're looking at them, and we recognize them all. There's no problem seeing the crucifixion or the nativity. Of course, they're magnificent frescoes, but, but sure, we recognize them. Then we see the anastasis, and we know it is because that's the Greek word written above Christ's head, he anastasis, in the fresco itself. What we're seeing is Christ magnificently robed. He is, in his left hand, he's holding sort of a ceremonial cross. It's not the old wooden cross, but it is a cross. And he's standing on Hades. Now, not hell. Hades is the personification of death in Greek mythology. Hades is the keeper of the prison house of death. He just got a job to... Keep all the death there so they don't come back and scare us all. Jesus is standing on top of him. He's kind of trampling him. And the bifold gates of Hades are set in a kind of a cross, like a Greek cross. So you're getting this strange imitation. Christ is standing on top of death itself. He's reaching back with his right hand, and he's grasping the rather limp wrist of Adam Eve is next to Adam, and he's kind of yanking him out of his sepulchre. And also present are kind of a general group known as the... All of these people are named, by the way, so there's no mistake. Adam is named Adam, Eve is named Eve, Jesus is an abbreviation. So there's no problem about the scene. It is Jesus taking humanity, because Adam and Eve are not just, well, two characters, like two prophets or Jeremiah or Isaiah. They are the human race.
0: So Mm -hmm. if you think of this
1: in four characters, you have Jesus, and he's very much the, the crucified one, because he's got his cross and all the rest of it, cruciform halo. He's trampling death, and he's liberating the human race, our species, homo sapiens, from the prison house of death. Now that's the scene. No interpretation for the moment beyond the obvious of, decoding it, then you don't have to decode it because the words are there to tell you Adam, Eve, Christ. You know who everyone is.
0: Right, and listeners, I mean, if you look at these pictures, I mean, it's very clear Greek script, Adam, Eve, so on and so forth.
1: And that's classic. I I don't think there is ever a single image in this tradition. We'll talk about, let's call it the Greek tradition for the moment, or the Mm -hmm. Oriental tradition, the Eastern Christian tradition. You might cut it down, if space gets really narrow, to just Adam. It will be very discourteous. It's usually Adam and Eve. It's almost, mm-hmm. I'm going to make 98% of the ones we've ever seen are Adam and Eve. So the the four characters are central. You may have other characters as well. You may have David and Solomon. You may have Abel and John the Baptist. But the ones that cannot be omitted are Hades itself, you might get away with, you know, skipping the figure of Hades and just having a kind of a dark place down there, but Christ, Hades, Adam, Eve. And those are the four. So that's the challenge, really. These exist. I'm not making them up. Uh, when we saw this, then we began to get curious about it. I still don't want to think at all we are thinking of a book. But we we're going back in this area every year, and then more and more we began to go looking for it. mm mm-hmm not just waiting to find it, why is it so different? And then he began to realize the West, let me put it this way, in the first thousand years of Christianity, both of these images are there, and either one, either one could have become normative for all of Christianity. But by the second millennium, in round numbers, after a year 1000, the West settles for this sort of superhero image of Jesus coming out all by himself, radiant, glorious, magnificent, but solitary. And the East always, always has maintained up to the present day this, what I'm going to call now another term, universal resurrection in the East as distinct from individual resurrection in the West. Mm-hmm. So that's the classic. Clash of Easter vision, you might call it, east and
0: west now. Right, right. But turning back to some of those early images, I mean, uh, they don't look like Piero della la Francesca. You know, I mean, these are no. <laughs> no, very, no. very symbolized, very abstract images. Um, tell us about those early attempts, because the development of this is part of the fascination of the story.
1: All right, we're now talking about the Western tradition Right. in In the Eastern tradition, it's pretty much there from the very beginning. The very first, just the Eastern tradition. Let me use this language, but the universal resurrection tradition, the earliest example is from the year 700. Mm -hmm. And basically even there, the very earliest one, you have, guess what? Jesus, Hades, Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Now go back to the, let's call it the individual tradition, which would eventually become the Western one. In the very beginning, the earliest ones we have date from around 400, and they're in stone sarcophagi. The best examples are in the British Museum, uh, yes, British Museum. sorry, in the Vatican Museum, the Pio Cristiano Museum in the Vatican. There's also some other examples scattered over um, the, the lower Rhone Valley around, you know, south of Avignon and places like that, but they've been so destroyed in the the French Revolution that you wouldn't recognize what's going on if you hadn't the good examples in the the Vatican Library. But what what you're seeing is, for example, let's imagine a sarcophagus, and you have five scenes, two to the left, two to the right, and a central one. Now, the two to the left and two to the right can change. The central one is going to have this. There's going to be two soldiers, One is liable to be looking up (laughs) and seeing. The other's got his head down and sleeping. (laughs) They have their swords and shields are there. There is no figure of Christ at all. What you have is an abstract symbol of the resurrection in that you have a cross. Soldiers are standing between the cross and facing into it. But the monogram of Christ, the hero symbol of Christ, in a wreath of victory, is on the center of the cross. So they worked out a symbol, which is sort of half symbolic in terms of Christ, half realistic or physical in terms of the soldiers, and you have that by 400 at the time of Constantine. So in one sense, the individual resurrection appears first, the year 400, and mm-hmm. you say, okay, this looks like this is going to be it. We got it by 400."
0: Right and but then I mean the individual resurrection doesn't start off with a bodily portrayal and that's part of what I find fascinating.
1: Exactly. If you were if you were actually in the year 400 and well I don't know how many other scenes you have but as an art historian or an art theologian looking back you say wait a minute every other scene that's available on either side of this center, for example, it might show Jesus being arrested mm-hmm. by soldiers. It might show Jesus before Pilate. This is an actual example. But these are all physical figures. That's Jesus standing there. He doesn't look like an abstract symbol. He's standing there. Pilate is washing his hands. Pilate, everything is real and physical and embodied except the center again. And the, Even the soldiers are realistic soldiers in the center but instead of Christ sort of, you know, like, wafting up to heaven above the soldiers or something, you have this symbol of Easter's triumphant victory. So, you know, yourself, you might say, at least as a, looking backwards, you could say, oh, this is a doomed image. <laughs> Every other image has Christ physical present in his life. This is not going to last. We've got to get him in there somehow.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and one other fascinating element before we start to turn to that Eastern tradition, and actually this is kind of a a transitionary moment because this is from a Byzantine tomb that is, you know, well, I mean, let's just talk about the image. I mean, one of the recurrent things about these is that they portray not necessarily a round stone that you could roll away from the mouth of a cave, but a lot of yes. these images portray the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, you know, the very Byzantine church, but they said it right in the middle of this uh, biblical scene. Uh, so tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, these pieces and how within them, liturgy kind of, you know, supplants biblical narrative.
1: And actually, an interesting thing about the, the research, when, I, we, when we started to imagine this, it was going to be all about the East, nothing about the West. Mm -hmm. But then we began to realize, if the West hadn't created an image, granted an abstract image as we were talking about, by the year 400, why did it take it so long to get Jesus in there? I mean, it seems rather simple. You just put Jesus sort of disappearing up above the two soldiers. It's not that Mm -hmm. hard to carve it. So we began to realize that the finding of what was considered to be the actual tomb of Jesus by the mother of Constantine in Jerusalem, sort of changed everything, but surely wasn't that the most important thing to show, you have the actual tomb, and it's empty, the real tomb as far as they were concerned. So we had to go into the imagery around that tomb itself, the one that's just been re-excavated, as everyone knows, in the last year. So that, that postponed, I think, the Western imagination from finally coming out and saying, okay, We have to have a physical body of Jesus in the Easter scene like we have in every other scene. And it took them to about 850 to get there. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and like I said, I mean, uh, just to be clear, listeners, I mean, if you're not looking at a copy of the book right now, in a lot of these images, uh, you have, you know, robed figures, you know, as you know, 8th, 9th century, people would have imagined, you know, biblical figures. But then, you know, instead of a cave, uh, as often, you know, Sunday school curricula and so on portray the tomb of Jesus in the 21st century, uh, you actually have a miniature picture of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, complete with, you know, um, steeple and, you know, everything else that you could imagine. So it's really a bizarre bit of the history.
1: It's interesting because you'd say, well, it's clearly described in the New Testament. It's a typical first century Jewish tomb, rather elegant tomb with a rolling stone. What could be more easy than that description? Instead of which you're getting a very elegant tomb granted in the Holy Sepulchre as Constantine carved it out from the living rock and made it a liturgical site. So what is starting to happen is liturgical site is triumphing over historical site, Mm -hmm. to say that pilgrims from all over the Christian world could travel to Jerusalem and could literally enter what was considered to be the empty tomb of Christ. And so in one sense, you would say, what image can compete with that?
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one interesting case... I think
1: it was only when Islam took over the holy sites in Jerusalem, and maybe pilgrimage might become more difficult that the West finally said, okay, enough as it were. We have to have a picture of Jesus physically rising out of the tomb. Guards can be all around, fine, Mm -hmm. sleeping, watching, whatever, but we want a physical body.
0: Right, right. Now, I mean, one of the interesting cases you make, and again, uh, the images in the book really tell this tale, uh, is that the... Arrangement of bodies in Eastern Anastasis images—they borrow a fair bit visually from Byzantine imperial coins and their depictions, not necessarily of religious events, but of imperial military victory. So, talk to our listeners about a couple of those coins and how those poses, if you will, translate over into Anastasis images.
1: This, in a way, was maybe the most fascinating. Because you're trying to imagine the mind of the people who had to paint fresco and, and mosaic and all the rest of it. This and this, We have no description. How, how do we imagine the scene? You're asking us to paint what is not described, the actual resurrection. What they have going for it was this. In the Byzantine coinage, and now we're talking especially of the, the Christian Byzantine emperors, they had various signs for victory on their coins. Uh, on the front, they'd have the head of the emperor, of course. On the back, how do you depict victory? Well, you can do it nice and brutally. The, the conquered person has his face on the dust, and my foot, the emperor's foot, is on his neck. That says nice clearly victory. But that's a little bit rough. That's not good propaganda. So hmm. you, you start to get two other Images of victory. Now, let's be clear, they're images of victory. But on one of them, instead of the vanquished person being crushed to the ground, the vanquished person is being raised up. It may be be a female person to impersonate or to personify a city, and the emperor is standing there with uh, (laughs) with his banner, which very often is, of course, a cross the emperor is standing with the banner in his left hand and his right hand reaches out and lifts up the kneeling well kneeling in the sense one knee down and one knee up you know coming up from a kneeling position conquered person so hold on to that image of the emperor victoriously lifting up the conquered person a third image even better shows the emperor leading the conquered person away not into captivity or slavery but out of barbarism into into civilization mm-hmm. because, because barbarism is represented by the forest. So you have a scene on the back of a Byzantine coin, forest to the left, emperor reaching back behind him. He's reaching behind him. He's leading forward. He's grasping the hand of his conquered enemy or who knows, and he's leading him out of the forest. Out of barbarism and their intercivilization, so you've got two visions of victory, or three actually. One which is crushing down the opponent; the other is either leading him out or raising him up. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the matrix out of which is carved, as it were, the two types of the Eastern style of resurrection. In one, Christ is raising up Adam and Eve while he is standing on, <laughs> to put it bluntly, Hades, death itself. And on the other, he's still standing on Hades itself, but he's leading them out. So the iconography of the Christian emperors is like the matrix, the design matrix, from which you would imagine, of course, these people who are probably, first of all, the well-paid artists of the same Christian emperors, So quite familiar with the coinage imagery. So coins are especially the imagery from which other images can be taken, because everyone understands them. They're the only mass information in antiquity. Everyone has seen coins and would be able to translate from emperor to Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating, too, because, um, you know, these are images, as you say, from Christian emperors. So, I mean, you know, first of all, the impulse to, you know, think of military conquest as a liberation of sorts would be even greater than it would have been for an Augustus Caesar or someone like that. But the other thing that that occurred to me as I was reading these passages is that uh, making the trampled foe not a person but an abstraction, you know, Hades, death, uh, you know, in some ways is an echo of the tradition of, you know, our our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities and so on so on. from the Epistle to the Ephesians. I mean, do you think that's an echo that's going on there in the artwork or is that coincidental? Oh, it's crucial. Okay. No,
1: Nathan, it's crucial. Because otherwise, I mean, you could imagine a brutal scene in which Christians are trampling down pagans. Sure. Or non-Christians or heretics mm-hmm. or anti-Christians or any term you want. And I would not be writing a book about it, let's be quite frank about mm-hmm. that. So what they've taken is what is bluntly kind of propaganda or uh, <laughs> public relations, if you want to put it, from the coins. But Jesus is trampling on a mythic phenomenon, death itself. Mm-hmm. Hades is Hades is a rather innocent character. He's just got a job to do. He's like a, <laughs> a keeper of the Tower of London. You don't take it out on him personally. His job is just to keep you in jails. So he's he's depicted as an old person because he's at this for a long time, or a very fat person because he's eaten off so many people. But his job is sort of just to protect the gates. Mm-hmm. And the, the scene imagines Jesus kind of charging through the gates so forcibly that the gates are flattened and poor old Hades is kind of pinned underneath them. You almost like to say, excuse me, Hades, nothing personal. <laughs> so... He, it's a mythic scene, and I think it's powerfully important for me that they did not choose, coming especially for imperial coinage, even to depict any type of conquered people.
0: Mm-hmm. The victory,
1: however you're going to explain it, understand it, is over death itself,
0: it's right, not over right.
1: anything else.
0: And talk a little bit about the locks, because this is another feature that uh, you know you, you brought attention to over and over in the book. I mean, there are basically shattered locks either flying through the air or on the ground or so on and so forth. I mean, is this also something that's common to imperial coins or does this seem to have its uh, origins with the Anastasis images?
1: Oh, no, this is totally with the Anastasis images. Okay. This is trying to imagine Hades as a classic prison house, as it were.
0: Of course, Mm. it'll
1: have locks and bolts and bars and all the rest of it. And it, it lent them the possibility that, you know, if you feel a little bit icky about putting poor old Hades down there with his face flattened to the ground, uh, let's just leave him out and we can get away with locks and bolts and bars and the bifold mm-hmm. doors and cruciform position. So you have quite a few images where he's not there, but he is symbolized by the locks and bolts and bars. So it, it gives them a flexibility that they don't have to if they don't want to, try and depict Hades as an actual figure. They could get away by showing the place because the word Hades as you know is both a person, a personage if you will, or an impersonation or a personification or it's a place. So you could say well, could we cool it a little bit on the personification and just go with the place and locks and bolts and bars. So it gives them a flexibility to go both or either.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good. Now, I I might be remembering this wrong because this isn't in my notes, but just in this conversation. Did some of these images actually feature Cerberus, the three-headed dog of the underworld as part of the scene?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's there's some um, this has to do with the the chapel built around the year 700 roughly mm-hmm. by uh, John VII in Rome. It it would have it's it was an old St. Peter's, so that was destroyed of course to make room for what is now the present or the new St. Peter's. It was, it would be the place where the Pietà Chapel right now is in New St. Peter's. It was in that corner. And he wanted to depict the life of Christ. Uh, he, this is going to be his tomb. The Pope was preparing his own tomb. Mm-hmm. So he had a big mosaic, by the way, a gorgeous mosaic. There's bits and pieces of it still around, though they destroyed it um, eventually to make room for Peter's. So he put up there scenes in which You have the Anastasis, and the artist who was told, okay, we're destroying this wall, so you make pictures of it, sometimes put in Cerberus, and it's fairly clear, I think, in the year 700, the Byzantine uh, Pope would not have put in Cerberus because it's not (laughs) part of the tradition. But we start getting, you know, it's like you're getting fed up with poor old Hades getting trodden on, you, you can, let's get the hellhound Cerberus and put him in there. It makes it a little bit more clear. Who's this guy Jesus is walking all over? So as the mythology changes, you might get to the point where people would say, well, who's that down there? Who's,
0: well, who's I, he walking I, on? Like I said, that that uh, detail I found fascinating because uh, when I teach Dante, uh, one of the features that my students often object to is the presence of Titans and the Minotaur and Kerberus. As you know, guardians of this, you know, ostensibly Christian underworld, and I just have to say, you know, that's that's part of you know Dante's vision here. But apparently, uh, it's several centuries older than Dante.
1: Yes, and um, of course, Virgil at the beginning of when Virgil when he's when he's a tour guide, as it were, mm-hmm. he tells the story of when Christ comes down to Hades. He tells this, uh, it's this kind of vague, unless you know what he's talking about, He, he just says, I was kind of new here in Dante. I was new here, and lo and behold, this guy came down. Yes. But of course, he, Dante is not ready to say <laughs> that Jesus liberated everyone from hell, because by now the Western tradition has boxed itself into a corner by translating Hades, the mm-hmm. place of death, as hell, the place of punishment. And once you make that move, then you're having Christ liberating everyone from hell, and that really messes up your theology.
0: <laughs> well, although he does have Adam and Eve already in paradise, so uh, yes. in some sense this vision, you know, translates into his poetry, and then in other senses, you know, it doesn't. So I mean, it's 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 a fascinating. I mean, it, it's always fascinating to talk about the development of Christian doctrine, but this is definitely one of those artistic developments. Uh, that you can actually trace these elements across centuries.
1: You can. And it, it was a real problem when the West finally decided, I suppose, after the split with Eastern Christianity, okay, as it were, from now on, our Easter tradition is the, the individual resurrection. They can go with their universal. They still had all of these images. I mean, they didn't disappear from the churches all over Europe because originally East and West was a minor difference in the Byzantine era. In fact, the earliest example we have of the Anastasis is in a papal Roman church in the Mm -hmm. year 700, as we mentioned. So what are we going to do with all of these images of Christ taking people out of somewhere, Adam and Eve and all the rest of it? So the Western, how do I put it, solution, was let's call this the descent into hell, the descent into limbo, the descent Mm -hmm. into anywhere but let's not call it the resurrection. Right. We can call it the harrowing of hell if we want. Call it anything, but please don't call it the resurrection. That's about Jesus alone. So you still have this images of all over the medieval texts in the Western Christianity, but it's going to be called the harrowing of hell or the destruction of hell. Or we talk about Jesus going down to preach,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to preach, The Greek word is kerousine, which means to proclaim.
0: So, of
1: course, what he does is proclaim we're out of here.
0: (laughs) Right, proclaim to to the dead. Mm -hmm.
1: You can watch the West struggle with its tradition.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned this in passing earlier. I want you to dwell a little bit longer. Uh, You make the claim that the rise of individual resurrection scenes is related to an increasingly intolerant streak in Islam and in, you know, Christians' artistic responses to that intolerance. So, I mean, what is it about an individual resurrection that stands as a protest against the new boss? Well,
1: what happened really was there was three very famous uh, codexes. That's little, tiny, they look about the size of a good paperback, but very thick, parchment. Mm -hmm. They're copies of the Psalms that would have been used in Constantinople in the 850s, let's say, right after the the iconoclastic anti-image controversy for about a hundred years had finally laid to rest. And you have three little monastic breviaries, as it were, for the Psalms. And all around the margins, the top, the right, and the lower margin, some monk, who is an artist, obviously, has painted tiny miniatures. This is where, they're they're from Constantinople, so they're clearly eastern, but you start getting, as early as anywhere else, images, for example, of Jesus literally coming out of the tomb. In the Paterprater Monastery in Mount Athos, it was important enough that I had to go all the way there just to see this uh, manuscript, from 850, Jesus is coming out like, you know, he's half out and half in the tube, mm-hmm. the perfect individual resurrection. And there's a whole series of those ones, individual resurrections, and a whole series of universal resurrections, all in the same little breviary. There's one in in the Historical Museum in Red Square in Moscow, and we had to go there to see that one. And there's one in France in the National, Muse- National uh, Library, but it's uh, badly... Um, you know, <laughs> brutalized so there's not too many images in there. But the two of them show why around 850 did Constantinople, is it starting to turn away from the universal tradition towards the individual tradition? What's going on? So what, what's happening is you begin to notice that in all of these images from 850, the dominant thing is the tomb and it's not the rolling stone tomb it's the Jerusalem tomb it's the holy sepulchre tomb Mm -hmm. you you may have the tomb with just David standing there making a prophecy you may have the tomb with just the women there you may have the tomb with Jesus there he's not there all the time but you always get the tomb (laughs) and it is the tomb from Jerusalem so the best scholarly interpretation this is not my own the best scholarly interpretation is that This is a statement to Islam, as it were, let me put it this way. Islam, you have taken over the holy sites Mm -hmm. of Christianity. In fact, you have built the Dome of the Rock a little bit higher than the the Dome of the Holy Sepulchre, as we did to the Jewish Temple (laughs) by triumphing over it. You have now triumphed over us. But David is one of your major prophets, O Islam. In fact, he's the only prophet who is a, a ruler like Muhammad, so your own David has prophesied about the resurrection of Christ. You must respect the holy sites of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a magnificent commercial message to <laughs> Islam to ask them to allow pilgrimage in plain language, because not because Christ rose there, which mightn't impress them at all, but because David said it would, and David is one of your great prophets. So uh, you can explain this I 'm going to say for the moment, temporary aberration, if you will, mm-hmm. around the eight, year mm-hmm. eight fifty when we first ran into, we thought is the are they starting to shift away from the universal and give at least as much time to the individual of what's happening? I think that's a better explanation because then you don't see it again. Mm-hmm. It goes right back to the universal resurrection as if as if this was a a speed bump on the road of the universal resurrection, not a change at all. But it, it was absolutely fascinating, of course, to go to Moscow and to go to Mount Athos to see these physical little manuscripts there from 850, and you can they let you actually take them out and put them on the desk in front of you.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about a uh, side trip that you know takes a few pages of this book, and that is into the tradition of the exalted scrolls, Uh, You know, this is a return in the age of the Codex to the scroll as the liturgical object, the text from which one would read. Um, So tell our listeners a little bit about what an exalted service would have been, and, you know, how do these antiquarian scrolls made for those liturgies tie into this story about visual art and anastasis and resurrection?
1: And they are magnificent, really. What's going on is... You have the vigil of Easter Sunday. Outside the church, for example, the new fire is lit, say for the lighted outside the church, obviously. Then the candles are lit from that and brought into the church. And the deacon before the bishop chants what's called the exalted. The exalted is all the earth is celebrating the new light, which is Christ. So that's what's going on. So imagine a darkened church with people holding candles. And, you know, darkened in the old days was darkened. And he is reading this. Now, to make it important, he's not reading from the ordinary book. That would be ordinary. He's reading from a scroll. But he's not reading left to right from a scroll, as you might think. He's reading top to bottom of a scroll. Mm -hmm. And as he reads it, it it unfolds, as it were, over the pulpit. But they decided again, though he has obviously needing the words of the chant. And I remember when I was in a monastery hearing the deacon do this, and it's it's magnificent, to be quite frank with you, in Latin, of course. They have pictures in there. They have illustrations of the various scenes that the chant is depicting, including, of course, the resurrection. They might also have a a picture of the crucifixion, of course, but the resurrection. And the resurrection is the, the Eastern style of the Anastasis, the universal resurrection. What's also fascinating is that, of course, the deacon has to be reading this. You know, he's reading it, but I'm sure he knows it by heart. I mean, he's in a darkened church with candlelight. He better know it by heart. Mm. But he has to be reading it at least right way up, whereas the images as they unfold and roll down over the pulpit have to be right way up for the audience, if they can see in the darkened church, or at least so they're, they're not upside down and Christ is tumbling down to the ground head first. So they're inverted. So the text reads one way and the images the other way. But it's in the tradition of the scrolls, starting, oh, you know, from the 1000s, 1100s, 1200s, 1300s, that you can see them starting to shift away from this image. Physically, if you go to the history of the scrolls, one of the final ones simply is saying, as it were, we don't want to use this universal resurrection for Easter anymore, we want the individual resurrection, so you see Christ coming out of the sepulchre all by himself,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: towards the end, and no picture at all of the universal resurrection. It's the place where you can almost say, show me in a single place where they have given up. (laughs) Obviously, it it takes a century of change to do it, but show me in a single place where you expect to see the universal resurrection. Mm-hmm. And instead you see a kind of a slightly strange Western resurrection, uh, sorry, Eastern resurrection, because Western resurrection because you, you see him coming out sort of, he comes out twice, and the first time he seems to be coming out of a hole in the ground. It looks very much like he's coming out of Hades.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then you see him climbing out of the resurrection, out of the sepulcher itself. So... I, I use it as an illustration, and we we took the trouble to go <laughs> to, to try and see all of these. As many, well, not, I'm not going to see all the exalted the There's thirty, thirty-five of them still extant. There's some in England, some in France. Most of them are in Italy, and we saw enough of them in Italy to be able to understand the sequence, and even someone one in Monte Cassino itself. So it, it, it's. Fascinating to watch, as it were, the Christian mind creatively adapting, changing, even rejecting. And then how do you solve what you're going to do with what you have rejected? If, if all of Christianity knows about this universal resurrection and you're preferring to go with the individual resurrection, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you get away with that? It's not like we're two separate worlds.
0: Right, so you right. can see it happening. Well, I want to pose to you an objection that our listeners might pose if I neglect the duty. Uh, when I look at you know these Eastern images and their universal anastasis, and I look at these Western Im- images and their individual resurrection, uh, my tendency when I look at them is not to call those two tendencies contradictory, but instead to call them two readings of the same moment as Dante might. One of them, a more literal narrative tradition, you know, emerging from the late chapters of Matthew, the other one, you know, an eschatological or an anagogical reading emerging out of maybe 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter. Why is it that you treat them as contradictory rather than as simply, you know, polyvalent?
1: And by by the way, this is an aside for answering your question. Uh-huh. There are Russian icons from about 1500 on that try to put the two of them into the same image.
0: Oh, fascinating. So you... Okay, okay, so... Yeah. So, someone so anticipated my question. <laughs> yeah,
1: so other people were thinking the same thing. But uh-huh. Wait a minute. Can't you have both? Can't you show the bottom half of your images shows Jesus down there. And he's doing a thing with Adam and Eve and everyone else. And then the top part of the image shows him coming out of the tomb and talking to the women and the disciples.
0: Sure, and I'm a literature In professor, so sense, I spend a lot of time the, with Dante. So, I mean, my first yeah. thought is the letter to Con Grande, right? You know, these are simply yeah. two readings of the same moment. But you yeah. again, this book treats them as contradictory. I have a sense that that's important, so I want yeah, to give I'll you a chance to, to explain to why that's that. important. Mm-hmm.
1: It is important to say that I think, you know, it could have been a, a very good solution to have said, okay, the resurrection is so important that we have dual images for it. For the crucifixion, we have one image, you know, and all the rest of it. But for this, we have what's happening down below, as it were, and what's happening up above. But anyway, let's go back to your question. This moves into... A very important point for me. People might say simply, "Well, the Greeks do it one way, and the Latins do it another way." Mm-hmm. You compare Greek and Latin and say they're contradictory languages, as it were. A point that has to be raised: which of these is in better, closer continuity with the New Testament itself? Or to put it more bluntly, if Paul had been asked <laughs> to draw an image of the resurrection he talks about so much. Would he have come up with, he certainly would have come up with Jesus, of course. Mm -hmm. He's he's never one guy among the many, by the way. He is leading the crowd. He is uh, not like there's a whole group there, and in in the middle of them there's Jesus. So, of course, he'd have Jesus. But would he have the Western individual or the Eastern universal? Which is in greater continuity? And that raises an extremely important question. Leave Christianity out of it for the moment. Imagine pre-Christian Judaism. When Mm -hmm. they spoke about an ascension, they knew, for example, that that an Enoch or maybe even a Moses or an Elijah could be assumed into heaven. A very holy person could be taken up to live with God. And Greco-Romans would have said, sure, that happened to our Romulus, and it happened to Julius Caesar, and it happened to Caesar Augustus, so sure. They would have said, powerful people can go up to God, to the gods. Now, resurrection is a very different word. Let me put this absolutely. Resurrection and ascension come from radically different Jewish traditions. You would not describe, unless you're using language very loosely, Elijah going up as a resurrection. Because resurrection is for the human race. There is no tradition in Judaism of resurrection for an individual. Ascension for an individual, to be sure. So if the Christian tradition had simply said Jesus rose from the tomb and ascended to be with God, a Jewish sage might say, I don't believe it, but he couldn't say, that's impossible. He couldn't. You're making a claim that our Jesus, our Christian Jesus, is on a par with your Elijah or Enoch or Moses. It's a claim, of course, that could be rejected, but it's a claim that could not be dismissed as being incomprehensible. So also a Roman imperial theologian might say, this is ridiculous. But they couldn't say it can't happen because you'd say, well, it happened to your Romulus and your Caesar Augustus. They might say, well, (laughs) who is Jesus? But you have to say, okay, you made that claim for Caesar. We're making that same for, for Christ. So resurrection concerns intrinsically the human race. Ascension concerns intrinsically an individual. So you have changed theological registers. That's what's going on. And I don't think that's nothing. I haven't even got into the meaning yet, but I don't think it's nothing to say that we have changed the meaning of the New Testament, because that's why we're willing to subtitle our book, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter vision. Mm -hmm. It's not just, well, there's two of them and we could put them together and that you could do. It's that they represent profoundly different theological registers.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this then. I mean, uh, following up with that discussion, I mean, is it a category error to talk about Matthew 28 then as narratives of resurrection?
1: Well, you see, you have precisely in Matthew, that's why Matthew was so fascinating in this, mm-hmm. Matthew is the only one that mentions that strange piece of tradition which he must have got and had an awful time handling. Remember he tells that story that when Jesus is taken down from the cross, as it were, and the whole earth trembles to receive his the body of, of Christ, mm-hmm. tombs were opened, he says, and many bodies of the saints who had died arose. He uses the same word now for resurrection, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that's a typical piece of Jewish tradition. That's what they expected to happen with resurrection. Matthew is trying to fit this piece of tradition into his story from Mark. So what's he going to do with these people who arose on Good Friday? He's going to say they appeared, of course, otherwise how do you know they arose? But they can't do that before Jesus. You, know, you can't, you can't <laughs> go before Jesus. So he has them arise on Friday, and they're sort of in a holding pattern, as it were, until Sunday, and then they appear to many in Jerusalem. So Matthew himself knows the tradition that, let me use the word, not universal, but that the resurrection must be communal. Mm-hmm. You can't have the idea of Jesus rising alone. You have to have at least others. Now, who are the saints? He calls them those who have slept, and that's the term that is used then in Paul. When Paul talks, Jesus as the first fruits of those who have slept. That's the code word for those who have died. Clearly, in the sure. New Testament, excuse me, the New, New Revised Standard Version translates it as those who have died, it's those who have slept. That's their attempt to put a a word on those who had died, for sure, but who rose with Christ. And, of course, it raises the huge question of, how many are we talking about? Who are we talking about? And that question was put around the year 500 by Bishop Avodius to Bishop Augustine and drove him crazy because he said, Avodius asked the obvious question, Well, if everyone rose from hell, he says hell, Latin for hell is, with Christ on that first Easter Sunday, why won't everyone do the same on the last day so there'll be nobody left in hell? Mm -hmm. And he asked this question, and poor Augustine tears his hair out. You he, he writes <laughs> two and three pages saying, no, 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 it's only a few people, it's a few prophets who who, who foretold Christ and they recognized him, and they got out with him, just a few, just a few. And then he finally, exasperated, says, look, I wish nobody would ever talked about this going down to hell. I wish they talked about him going up to Abraham's bosom.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. it, it's
1: marvelous to read because the poor guy, you know, you you can't translate hell as into hell, without emptying hell.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, in the book's final chapter, Dominic, you return to a Gnosticism tradition as an ethical mandate for the faithful and for really for humanity more broadly. So, to what kind of life does this universal image call us in two thousand eighteen? Well,
1: that's what I'm really after in the book. I mean, you can go through the history and say, well, the West did this and the East did that and this and mm-hmm. that and whatever. I'm looking at a historical mythic picture. It's like if you went into the Barda Museum in Tunis, and you see there a mosaic. Let me take it away from Christianity for a second. The mosaic is magnificent. It's from Roman North Africa. It's now up on the wall. It's probably on the floor, I suppose, originally. It shows Odysseus, Ulysses. Mm -hmm. He's tied to the mast of his ship because the sirens are trying to stop him safely getting home. Now, it's a mythic situation. You can argue how much history is. We can do all of that stuff. But I look at that image, and what it says to me is this. Homer's Iliad tells of a war in a distant place that took ten years. And Homer's Odyssey tells me of an attempt to get home again, safely, from a war in a distant place. And it takes ten years to get home. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading Vietnam straight off that. Sure. Did, we, did Homer already knew that when you fought in a distant place, even if you won, by the way, getting home again ain't easy. And these are all of these things that stop you going home: some some evil ones, some good ones, some. So I can't read an ancient image like that and say, "Yeah, this kind of stupid stuff." I think they made this all up. I look at this image, and I say, "What does it mean for us today?" to look at an image in which a a physical figure, Christ, a real person as far as I'm concerned, who was put to death. What was he put to death for? He was put to death for nonviolent resistance to Roman imperial violence. How do I know that? I know it primarily and exclusively because of how he was executed. In Roman law, if you are a violent rebel, you and all your... (laughs) your closest companions would be crucified in a nice row. Violent rebellion begot corporate crucifixion. Mm -hmm. If you were an individual rebel, spoke against Roman law and order enough annoyingly, but didn't do anything violently, then you alone were to be put to death. So if I just have Pilate, the only thing I know about it is what Tacitus tells me and... uh, Josephus tells me, and of course the Apostles' Creed tells me, that Jesus was executed, crucified, by Pontius Pilate. And I see nothing about, so also was Peter and the twelve lined up and, you know, twelve crosses there. Then I know, okay, Jesus was living programmatically and died programmatically for nonviolent resistance to Roman law and order. That's why, in all of these models, he will be carrying the cross. You can't get over the cross. Isn't this the resurrection? I'll be watching his wounds on his hands. I'll be seeing a cruciform halo on his head. I'll be seeing the gates of Hades in a cruciform position. Okay, I say, okay, I got this. I'm looking at the crucified one, clearly alive and beautifully robed. He is conquering death. I'm getting that from the image. He is trampling on death. And he's liberating the human race from death by his non-violent vision. Now, I can't look at that today and say, well, these people are mixing up human stuff and mythic stuff. And it's all, I don't know what it is. What I see is a warning to our species. I'm talking about Homo sapiens. Our species left Africa 70,000 years ago. By 10,000 years ago. We had <laughs> gone across the entire world. We had already, you know, well, in Australia and South America, everywhere else. And we had exterminated or absorbed all other homo species except ourselves. And we're starting to, in the bad sense of the word, conquer the world. In fact, to invent civilization. First of all, in the plains of Mesopotamia. First of all, but not exclusively. I'm seeing a warning as clear as the warning of Odysseus strapped to his mast. Oh, human race, watch, watch escalatory violence. Watch that you've never had a weapon you didn't use. Watch that it only took you 3,000 years to get from an iron sword to an atomic bomb. 3,000 years? That's, that's not even a hiccup in time. What will stop you from destroying yourself? Not trying to be melodramatic, but granted the trajectory of escalatory violence—not that we're getting more evil, we're just getting more adept at doing things. This I read as a warning, an early distant warning, 2,000 years ago. What will save our species? Not individuals. It's not going to do anything for you and I. But what will save? If somebody comes in the future to record the the trajectory of our species, will it end up with finally? It was a magnificent species, glorious, gorgeous, and it finally destroyed itself and its world. Is that going to be our species, like as if we were the saber-toothed tiger? Or will we listen to the only solution that will save us from violence, not more and more of it, but non-violent resistance? I'm not talking about non-violence, please. I'm talking about non-violent resistance. Because the Romans did not crucify Jesus for nonviolence. They crucified him for nonviolent resistance. So I can't read any of the Eastern tradition and not read it straight to speak to our world. I don't know how to do it. It's not that I have to say, now, how does that apply today? It's exactly the same as when I looked at the Barter Museum years ago at that magnificent mosaic it was of Odysseus. All I could think of was the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. If it takes you 10 years to win, even, it may take you 10 years to get home. Right. And at least Odysseus did get home.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, Dominic, I have been at the steering wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, What about Anastasis, Christian art, or whatever else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head for the door?
1: Okay, I'm probably going to repeat myself. In the last chapter of the book, This was 2015. Sarah and I were in uh, Moscow about two weeks after the the great 2015 military celebration of the victory in the Great Patriotic War, which we know as World War II. They were still taking down, most of the stuff was down. And we walked into Red Square the first morning. We got there, it seems like a Thursday evening or something. First thing we did on Friday morning was walk over to Red Square. We walked through. The Resurrection Gate, of course. That's what it was called. That's why we're not. And as we walked inside, we turned around, and on the inside, inside Red Square now, uh, we're going to be in the northeast corner, we see an anastasis. So in the, the last chapter of the book, we took a scene and, uh, of May Day 2015 with the tanks and the tanks destroyers coming through Red Square from the northwest corner, and the anastasis looking down on them. And we took that as two options for our future. And we're not talking just about Russia, we really are. When is that anastasis there? Will we accept nonviolent resistance to violence as the trajectory for the human race's destiny? Or will we figure that, okay, the Russians will build these weapons and show them to us in 2015 and by 2016 we'll try to have better weapons and by 2017 they will have, you you know, we put together those two images. So if anything haunts the imagination of people from the finish the book, those two images. And one final point. The reason there's two authors on the book is that this book is about images. I was not the least bit interested in writing a theology of the Anastasis. It was Sarah's images as we traveled and her work with images when we had to get uh, pages from the Vatican Library or something that made me finally see it. And I, I want people to see it. Don't think of this as a text illustrated with images. This is really images expanded, explained by a text. It is going to be looking at the images that changes you, or else the book has failed.
0: John Dominic Crossan, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles.
1: Always a pleasure, and anytime, Nathan. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Listeners, thank you for downloading. The book is Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and East Kept the Original Easter Vision. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.